I was out of the country last weekend, but I thought of you. I thought of being here today and um, what the Lord would have me preach to you. I wanted to encourage you and also to remind you of some things. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As I was singing that song, I was reminded of God's faithfulness to me personally and my family, but also God's faithfulness to you. And as I think we look at this portion of God's Word and think through some of its principles together, I think you'll recognize that God has been very gracious and faithful to you too. 1 Corinthians 4 is obviously early on in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a book about Paul's trying to put out fires in a church. There's 20 problems that are addressed in the book of Corinthians, and he has to address all 20 of them. You'd think 20 problems would finish off a church, but God's bigger than any one person, any one family, any one church, and he can deal with problems. And so in chapter 4, Paul begins in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 5, and he's going to talk about how people should look at him. Paul was called to be an apostle. You know, he was a big-time persecutor of the church. He, was, he had overseen the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 6. He had people arrested and put in jail, and he didn't care if you had kids they could go to jail too. And he was on his way to Damascus and Syria. Damascus is a very old city like Jerusalem. And he was on his way there to put believers in prison. But on the way, Jesus Christ interrupted his plans. And he was called to be an apostle. And an apostle is a man who's sent with authority. He's sent with divine authority from Jesus Christ. He's seen the risen Christ. Christ personally has called him. And so Paul's defending some aspect of his apostleship here. Let's read together 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. This is how one should regard us, us being apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, or in addition, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Some of your versions may say faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you, or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Verse 2 says it's required of a steward that he be found trustworthy. A steward is somebody who's given a stewardship. And you go, well, duh. But a stewardship is something that's entrusted to you, but you don't own it. You're to give an account for it. You're to manage it. You're to, you know, for example, you as a farmer might uh, be given some acreage of land that you could farm, but you don't own the land. And you, were, you had promised to give a certain percentage of the produce of the land to the person you got the land from. In this case, he's saying, God gave me a stewardship. God entrusted the gospel to us apostles. And it's required of a steward, it's required of someone who's been given a responsibility that they be found trustworthy. Older version said faithful. So I'm going to use faithful and trustworthy as synonyms this, this afternoon. The world has many standards of how to measure success. And I'm going to try to explain to you the first point is, what is faithfulness or trustworthiness and what it isn't? Then number two, why it's a big deal to God, why God cares about faithfulness or trustworthiness, and then try to close with some application. 
So what is faithfulness? What does it mean to be trustworthy? You're worthy of someone's trust. The world has many standards of how to measure success. In the world, for example, money, what it can buy, fun, luxury, influence. For example, if you drove up to a church today in a new Ferrari, in some people's minds you'd, have, you'd be a more significant person because you had that really cool, expensive car. I saw a bumper sticker, and it's been around the country, and it said, whoever has the most toys at death wins. In other words, the more material possessions you accumulate, the more cool stuff you have, you're the winner. The bigger the house, the more lavish your wardrobe, the more expensive your jewelry, are all signs of worldly success. And Christ is not impressed by any of these. And he doesn't judge by any of these standards. So whether you're rich or poor, whether you're cool or uncool, this does not cut ice with God. He is not impressed by things that the world thinks is important, especially having money. Now the world also values power. Boy, watch TV. Listen to the conversations at work. Having power, having the authority, making people do what you say. Who's the boss and who has the final say-so? Power and authority, it runs nations. It calls armies to war. It establishes policy. It leads business empires. And it determines the economy and plans and futures of nations. John Calvin rightly said back in the 16th century, from the maid who works in the kitchen to the king sitting upon his throne, each of them and each of us harbors a kingdom in our hearts. We'd all like to be big time. We'd all like to be somebody with importance and tell people to run and jump. But Jesus Christ is impressed by none of these things and doesn't judge by this. So how much power or authority you have in the culture or in the church or any place else is not impressive to God. A third thing that's really big time in our culture is if you have fame and popularity. There are some people for famous because they're famous. They haven't really done anything, but everybody knows who they are, and so they're kind of famous. They're popular. Everybody knows me, and they think I'm great. When everyone loves you, they want to spend time with you. They think you're the greatest. You're in a position that's highly sought after in the world. You know, you've been on television or you've been in a movie. You've had a record contract. You've had your picture on the front page of a magazine. And these things are not important to God. Jesus Christ is impressed by none of these things, and he doesn't judge by these things. So what is the standard by which Christ evaluates one of his servants? Because among other things, on Judgment Day, we will be evaluated as believers with, what did you do with what I entrusted to you? What did you do regarding what I called you to do? And for Christ, faithfulness is the hallmark of distinctively Christian leadership and Christian service. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, is the distinction that Christianity has as to evaluating its leaders. Not by the amount of your gifting, but how faithful you were with what God gave you. It's required of a steward that he be found faithful or trustworthy, worthy of trust. I entrusted something to you, so what would you do with it? What is faithfulness? Faithfulness means that you did what you were appointed to do. Regardless of fanfare or acclaim, you did it in season and out of season, when men were watching and when no one but God could see. Faithfulness means that you do not change your job description. You don't cheat on your timesheet. You do exactly what the master enlisted you to do. 
Faithfulness means you do not run away and hide when problems come, and they will. But you stay in the game and see things through to the end. That's faithful. Faithfulness means that you do not substitute your own will for the will of the master, but carry out his desires, his agenda, his will. And I'm always struck by the passage in 1 Samuel chapter 15 where Saul was the newly anointed king of Israel, the very first king. And God gave him specific directions. These people are vile. These people are wicked. I want you to go in there and kill the king and I want you to exterminate everything. Got it. So what happens? Well, he goes in there. He spares the king, spares some of the booty or the spoils, spares some of the nobles, I suppose. And when he comes back and, and God tells Samuel, the prophet, well, Saul the king did not do what I told him to do. Right from the get-go, he wasn't faithful. And so, you know, what does Samuel say to Saul? So did you do the Lord's will? Did it. Well, what is that lowing of the cattle I hear? What is that? Oh, right, <laughs> that stuff. Well, you know, I knew that the Lord wanted me to be a good steward of these things, so I spared the king, I spared some of the cattle, I spared some of the, the stuff that we captured. Well, that wasn't your job description. That wasn't what you were asked to do. You weren't to make up your own. And then Samuel gives this hard rebuke to Saul. To obey is better than sacrifice. God doesn't care if you come to the communion table, but you have something you need to do and you don't plan to do it. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed, to, to obey, is better than the fat of sacrificial rams. To do what you're supposed to do is better than saying, well, I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to go offer my sacrifice. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. God says, if you know what to do and you refuse to do it, you know, you, you go about witches, well, you're just as vile to God as somebody who's involved in witchcraft if you're rebellious if you don't do what you're supposed to do. God's servants are evaluated on their faithfulness, not on the size or the seeming importance or the glamour of their assignment. And this will be encouraging to some of you. A person with fewer or smaller gifts who is 90% faithful will be rewarded rewarded more highly than the person who has much greater gifts but is only 75% faithful. In other words, it's not the size of what's entrusted to you but the degree to which you are faithful to do what you've been asked to do. Faithfulness or trustworthiness is a rare gift. It's a rare possession, even among professing believers, sadly. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 6, Solomon says, Who can find a faithful man? Who can find somebody that you know that if you entrust things to him, he will do it? In the New Testament, Paul, speaking about Timothy, his associate, says this in Philippians 2, 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who will sincerely care for your situation. For everybody else seeks their own, not the things that are of Christ Jesus. Paul says, of anybody I could send to you, the most trustworthy is Timothy. Because other people have their own agendas, and Timothy's agenda is to do the will of God, and he cares about you. He is defined as being faithful, even though he doesn't use the word. And there's a logical error that some of us can fall into. It's called the word fallacy. If the word's not there, the concept's not there. The Bible's full of the Trinity, but the word Trinity is a made-up word to describe the things that are in the Bible. So don't make the word fallacy that I didn't use the word faithful or trustworthy about Timothy, so it's not there. Paul describes a faithful, trustworthy man. 
A faithful servant doesn't have his own agenda, but he lives to fulfill the agenda assigned by his master, the Lord. The faithful servant is excited and satisfied when his master's will is done, done right, done well, done to the very end. I had a friend in Indianapolis who had moved from Tucson, and his job with this big corporation was to manage Christian radio stations, and he had managed a Christian radio station in Tucson and kind of cleaned it up from being kind of a mediocre station to a top-notch station in terms of the quality of what they did. When he came to Indianapolis, things were just poor. Now, for some of you, you'll have to bear with me because there's a historical study here. There used to be round black things called records, and they had a hole in the middle, and you laid them down, and, you put some, and it made sound, made music. Okay. Well, back in those days, they only had records. And he said it was really bad because when it was time for a new piece of music to come on, you could hear, in other words, the lead-in was recorded, and it wasn't crisp and proper. And he said things didn't end on time, they didn't start on time, it was just a mediocre place. So he called a staff meeting and said, guys, this is unacceptable. You know, the, the, you don't start on time, you don't end on time, your lead-in to the records is terrible. This is unacceptable. And one of the staff raised their hand and said, boss, this is a Christian radio station. You don't expect it to be like a secular one, do you? And he was shocked. What, because they do it for money, they, they're expected to be better, but you do it for the Lord so you can be kind of mediocre. I could use some other words, but mediocre will be acceptable in public. Really? They do it for money, so that's why they do a good job, but you only do it for the Lord so it can be half-baked. Lest you think that so-called menial jobs are not to be coveted, again, it's not the size of what's been entrusted to you, but who you're working for, who ultimately are you accountable to. Two great examples during World War II, Dwight Eisenhower was the last five-star general I believe we had, and he was in charge of all the forces of Europe. And he had a jeep driver. And this jeep driver counted it his life's greatest blessing that he could just drive a jeep for five-star general Dwight Eisenhower, the supreme allied commander. You go, what's so noble about driving a jeep? Nothing particularly. But it's who did he drive the jeep for? In the same way in World War II, Winston Churchill was the prime minister of Great Britain. And Great Britain was alone in the war for a couple of years before we entered the war. The, the war for Britain started in 39, 40, 41, and we didn't end the war till December, almost the end of, of 41, beginning of 42. So they were on their own for three or four years. The nation almost went under. He rallied the nation. And one lady said that it was her great privilege and honor that she was his secretary. Oh, really? I mean, your whole job in World War II was to be a secretary? Yeah. But it, who, it wasn't simply my job, but who it was for. I did it for Winston Churchill. Can we say less when we serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Why do you do what you do? Who do you do it for? I've tried to establish that there are things that are trustworthiness or faithfulness. There are things that don't count with God. You might be asking the question, why is faithfulness or trustworthiness so important to the Lord? Faithfulness, trustworthiness is the family likeness. God is faithful, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but you've probably told your children or will tell them at one time, I don't care what everybody else is doing. In our family, we don't do that. These are our family values, and we stick by them. So what are God's family values? Is he faithful to his family values? Does he tell his children stuff that he himself doesn't practice? 
And one of God's supreme characteristics is that God is faithful, God is trustworthy. You're putting your trust that God has atoned for all of your sins on the person of Jesus Christ, and his son's righteousness has been given to you as a free gift. You're banking on that, you're planning on that, because his word says that. You believe God is trustworthy, he's faithful. He's not saying, oh, I had my hands, my fingers crossed behind my back, and you guys are a bunch of fools. God is trustworthy, he is faithful. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's the only passage I'll have you turn to, but I'm going to read three verses, and it'd be good for you to eyeball them as I read them. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy is the long, long sermon that Moses gave to the people just before they entered the promised land. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Listen to what Moses says to the people, beginning in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. In other words, the the Jews were not the biggest number of people, so he chose them so he could have the most people on his side, so to speak. No. And he goes on to say, For you were the least of all peoples. Well, it just started with one guy, Abraham, so that's a pretty small group. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's the faithful God. He's faithful to his oath. In Hebrews chapter 8 and 9, there's two amazing statements made there. God promised that he would be faithful to fulfill the covenant that he made with his son. And the Bible says that for something to be ratified, to be true, it has to have two witnesses. So God said, there's no higher witness than myself. So not not only promise, but I solemnly swear, so to speak, that I will come good on this, that I will do what I said I will do. May I cease to be God, so to speak, if this doesn't happen. God promises and then he swears by himself that he will be faithful. Think about the Bible. Think about its inspired record. We begin with Adam and Eve and their quick fall into sin. So what happens? Genesis 3.15, God promises that someone's coming who will smash the head of the serpent who in turn will be wounded himself on his heel, so to speak. And as the Bible unfolds, if I were to walk through the Bible beginning in Genesis, we see the outpouring of God's plan. I'm going to fulfill what I promised to Adam and Eve. Sin is not going to have the last word on this planet. The devil's tricks are not going to have the last word on this planet. I will fulfill my purposes for this planet. And so from biblical writer upon biblical writer, book after book, we see God faithfully fulfilling his plans. He's going to do exactly what he said. And sometimes it seems excruciatingly slow. Why didn't he hurry up? Why didn't he make this move faster? The book of Jeremiah is a record of his people being unfaithful for the upteenth time. And so he tells them, he says, well, you're going to go into exile. You're going to spend 70 years, two generations of your kids learning a foreign language in a foreign culture, eating strange food. And that's going to break you of certain habits. and You'll come back from there a different people. In the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah's weeping plea for his people. 
Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We just sang that. Did you believe it as you sang it? Is God going to somehow go back on his promises? Is he not good to his word? Is the sun not going to come up in the morning? Are the stars going to fall out of the sky? Is the moon not going to reflect the light of the sun back to planet earth? Later the prophet Hosea, who was called to marry a woman of adultery or of harlotry, and he was surrounded by so many unfaithful Jews, yet he could cry out in hope in Hosea eleven twelve, The Holy One is faithful. Maybe I can't count on anybody else in this fallen world, but I can count on God, and he is faithful. What does the New Testament record reveal? Does God change in the New Testament? Does he cease to be faithful to his promises? When Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled over 300 Old Testament promises of what the Messiah would be like. He was faithful to his calling. Philippians 2 says, even to the point of death. Yes, he came as a servant. Yes, he came as a nobody. He fulfilled God's calling upon his life. He went so far as to even die on the cross to fulfill his calling. Each of the New Testament authors writes about the faithfulness of God. Think of, for example, I thought of some verses. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there going to come a time when I can confess my sins and God won't forgive me? No, because he's faithful. And he's just to do it. He's righteous because his, his holy justice has already met the demands and his son was crucified for these sins. Faithful is he who called you, who will also bring it to pass. Why have you persevered this far? Why haven't you fallen away? Why haven't you succumbed to the many sins that still inhabit your heart? Because though you and I may feel unfaithful, he's not unfaithful. Who started this whole thing? Who planned the salvation? Who sent his son? The father and the son together sent the spirit. Why do you persevere as a Christian? Why don't you fall away? Because God is faithful to his promises. Because God is faithful to his purposes. Because God is faithful to his own character. Jesus Christ is the faithful one. Did the Holy Spirit do what Jesus said? Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 15, and 16, I'm going to send someone just like me. He's also God, but he's not me. I'm going to send someone just like me. And he's been with you, but he's going to be in you. And he will enable you to be different men. And boy, after Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they were different men. You know, Peter had cursed even denying to a slave girl that he knew Christ. And yet after the Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit, he stands up at the feast of Pentecost and with thousands of people, many of whom were there at the crucifixion of Christ, he says, you crucified the Messiah. You and the Romans together kill the Lord of glory. You don't do that if you're a coward. How did he go from being a coward to being a brave man? He went because God the Holy Spirit was faithful to give grace to God's people. Did God the Holy Spirit give you a new birth? Yes. Did he enable you to repent? Yes. Did he enable you to believe? Yes. You did repent, and you didn't believe. He didn't repent or believe for you, but he enabled you to do it. Are you kept? Yes, you're kept by the power of God. I could go through so many details about the faithfulness of God to his people. But the point is, faithfulness is the family likeness. God is a faithful God. Our only hope of heaven is trusting that the word is faithful. God's faithful to what he promises. 
He sent his son on a rescue mission. Read the book of uh, read Isaiah 53. Everybody that Christ died for, he will get. Not one will be missing before his throne. Jesus says in John's Gospels, Everyone the Father gave to me will come to me, and I will lose none of them. Your hope of glory, my hope of glory, our hope of making it, is not because, well, we're pretty awesome Christians, and, you know, we're just really stellar people, and God's lucky to have us on his team. In our sane moments, none of that does think that. We will make it because God is faithful to his covenant promises to his son. I will give these people to my son as his reward for dying on the cross for them. Let's look at faithfulness in our closing time now and evaluate it in some different ways. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that the ultimate way of looking at faithfulness is the fact that God is the final judge. He said in the text that I just read, he said, you know, I don't care what people think about me. Now, I've been in the ministry since 1970, and you get lots of opportunities to go, uh, do I care about what people think of me? Well, sure. I mean, if you're a jerk and obnoxious, you're going to have a harder time getting people to follow you, right? So you want to have some people skills. But at the end of the day, what if you don't have man's favor, but you have God's favor? Can you live with that? Paul says, you know, what you think of me is not the final judge of my character, of me. And he says, what I think of myself isn't the final judge. My conscience isn't aware of anything, but I could be wrong. On the judgment day, God will, himself will bring to light hidden motives, things that other people didn't understand, and then things will be meted out by God. And then he says, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So the question comes in, how do we know who are the faithful people? Well, we have to leave it to the Lord. And that's a hard part of giving a, being given a stewardship, being entrusted with something. You go, well, I'm not a, a deacon or I'm not a pastor in this church. Um, what kind of leadership do I have? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a mother or father? Are you a Christian kid? Do you have a job? Are you an employer? Then you have a stewardship. You have a responsibility entrusted to you. And it's very hard to be somebody entrusted with responsibility because you get second-guessed all the time. All the time. We can't determine our course of duty by going, oh, I think this is what we should do because this is what everybody's yelling at me I should do or this is what the culture says I should do. But we have to be faithful to the Lord. And sometimes that means people are upset with you. Sometimes you have to tell your kids something they don't want to hear. Dad... How can you think that? What planet are you from? And dad deals with surly attitudes by saying, well, this is what I understand from Scripture, what God would have us to do, and we're going to do it. Leaders are always subject to wrong judgments and criticism. Faithful leadership is not a popularity contest. Doing your job is not a popularity contest. You're doing your job as unto the Lord, not to the crowd, not to your wife, not to your husband, not to your kids, not to your employer, although you do have to give an account if you're under someone else's authority. But ultimately, it's to the Lord you have to give an account. We must know our job, and then we must do it faithfully to Christ. Then each of us will receive our praise from the Lord. Let me walk you through some applications of how this might work itself out. First point I want to make is that faithfulness, trustworthiness, is not doing something great or spectacular. 
I was going to look it up on the internet and I forgot, but in 2010 or 12, roughly, I think 10, a book came out entitled Radical, and it swept through the Christian world. It was like dropping a boulder in a pool. The ripples went everywhere. And the thrust of the book was this. You're a crummy Christian if you live in your little suburban house doing your little job and being a nice churchgoer. If you really meant business for God, you'd quit your job, move into a tough part of the city, or better still, go overseas to some God-forsaken country and take your family there and live on the edge for Jesus. And a lot of pastors beat their people over the head with this, and a lot of Christians who read the book beat themselves up. The entire premise of the book was wrong. There's nowhere in Scripture where you're commanded to move to a rough part of town where you're commanded to leave America and go overseas. In fact, if anything, some of the commands that were wrenched out of their context in the book were given to pastors in the pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, and not to laymen. The New Testament doesn't call you to do something radical or spectacular. It calls you to something far harder. Be faithful. Faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, I know one pastor wrote a blog, and I put it on my blog, and my blog went from having 20 or 30 hits a day to a couple of thousand, boom, and it looked nice on my little thing here, whoa, and then went back to reality, but people were accessing that, why? He wrote a blog entitled, How Ephesians Ruined My Radical Christianity. Why? Because he said, reading the book of Ephesians, what does Paul tell the Ephesian church? And if you read the introduction to the book of Ephesians, Many scholars note that there were other copies of that book that were, were also said, send, send it to these people. In other words, Ephesians became kind of a circular letter that went to several churches. So what did Paul tell these several churches? Do your work faithfully. Be a faithful husband. Be a faithful wife. Be a faithful Christian kid. Be a faithful parent. Be a faithful employer. Be a faithful employee. Be a faithful churchman. That's it. He didn't tell them to do anything radical or extreme. Be faithful in the more mundane tasks that you're asked to do. Another pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, wrote a book, The God of the Mundane. Small little book, a powerful little book. He said, I used to beat people over the head with this other stuff. I would make them feel so guilty. I would whip up on them. You're just living for yourself. You're living in the suburbs. You're not doing anything radical for Jesus. And then he said, I started reading my Bible more closely and found out that I was twisting Scripture horribly. And beating people over the head was something God had not intended for them to be or to do. And so later he wrote this book, The God of the Mundane. The mundane is everyday, normal, unglamorous stuff. If your job as a teenager is to take out the garbage, then you take out the garbage faithfully without being asked. Is an example of something very mundane. Another pastor said, how much farther along the kingdom of Christ would be in America. If instead of laymen going, how oh, can I do something spectacular and radical? If they would just work at being faithful to who they are. Be a faithful husband. Be faithful at work. Be faithful to your wife. Be a faithful parent. Wives, be faithful to your husband. Be faithful to what God's called you to be and to do. Be faithful to your children if God's given them to you. You profess to be a Christian kid, then be faithful to your profession of faith and be faithful to your parents. Are you a Christian who has a job? Then be faithful at your job. Be known for being the very best at what you do. Not because you're doing it for the buck only, but because you're serving Christ and people see that you do it for Christ. Are you an employer? 
then make it be known that you're the best employer around because you treat people like the Bible says an employer ought to treat his people. He said how much farther the kingdom would be advanced if Christians were faithful to their mundane, everyday, low-key kind of responsibilities rather than aiming for something high. You know, have you ever seen a, a, a comet? Or have you ever seen a shooting star? Pretty spectacular. By the way, how long did that last? Did it last for hours, days, weeks? Well, a few seconds and it was gone. And there are people in Christendom who were big time for a short time, and they flashed from the scene never to be seen again unless until they crashed and burned. But every day, every day, every day, every day, be faithful. It's actually a harder job. You know, my, t- my wife and I are different. She'll tackle something for 15 minutes a day for six weeks. I'll have this volcanic activity on a Saturday to, uh, to get it done. That's my temperament versus hers. It doesn't make one of us better than the other, but at times I wish I was my wife. But just doing the, the faithful thing, just keep doing it. Well, I've done that for 10 years. Great. Do another 10. Keep on going. You know, years ago I used to tell this as a joke but some people didn't see it was a joke you know when you're dealing with students and you're carrying a gym bag and the person said you working out I said yeah I jogged once Uh, the goal isn't to jog once it's to jog a second time and then a third time and you keep on jogging until you get too old and decrepit decrepit, and you go walking but the point is you keep doing it you don't just do it once yeah I was faithful one day at work okay Can you be faithful every day at work? Do you put in eight hours of work for eight hours of pay? Do you stand at the water cooler the longest? Are you known as the biggest goof-off, or are you known as the most conscientious? A few years ago, in 1995, I went to a conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in January. It was 35 below zero every day. You go, you weren't very smart, were you? I didn't realize what I was going to get into. And school was in session. Those poor people were going to school until Friday when it got to 50 below zero, and they decided it was a little too cold for the kids to stay and wait for the bus, so they let the kids off. But I was at this conference to hear a certain man speak, and the man who hosted the conference gave a message on Martin Luther. And it was the last message before lunch, and I can remember thinking as I was listening to this message, this is really a wrong-headed message it's going to do more harm than good. Martin Luther was a great man. By the way, uh, how many Martin Luthers have there been in church history? Is there Martin Luther 1 and 2 and 40? You know, I, I can only think of one. It's like how many Spurgeons, you know. Well, he was beating the man over the head that they weren't like Martin Luther. He had his PhD. Sure, he knew German because he grew up in Germany. He knew his Greek. He knew his Hebrew. He knew Latin. He wrote something significant every two weeks after his conversion. So what are you slackers out there doing in your pastorates? And the the upshot of it was very easily to to recognize what was going to happen. We had lunch right afterwards. We had big round tables, eight men at a table. You had your place settings there. They served the food. It was interesting. This meal next to our place setting, they had little cat and nine tails so you could flagellate yourself during the meal. I mean, it it was that kind of deal. And so I sat there and listened and ate, and guys were going around... Oh, I'm just not like what the pastor said. He said, I'm out there to be creative, innovative, push the envelope. This guy goes, 
I'm from Iowa. I don't even know what it means to push the envelope. And those kind of comments, they went on and on. And uh, the pastor even said, the famous speaker pastor said, quote, I don't want to pastor some rinky-dink Reformed Baptist church where you check people at the door to see if they dot their I's and cross their T's. I want to pastor a big church where there's all kinds of people come and I can teach them. And a couple of my Reformed Baptist friends were there with me go, I didn't know we were rinky-dink. Do you feel (laughs) rinky-dink? Anyway, I I let the guys talk for most of lunch while I finished mine. And finally I said, well, this is my first and probably my last time to come to this conference. And I wasn't a great fan of the speaker who said these things. But I finally jumped and I said, gentlemen, do you want creative or innovative or he pushed the envelope on your tombstone? I mean, don't we normally leave that for the liberals and the heterodox and people who go astray? I said, what is that you want written on your tombstone? What does the Bible say? It's required of a steward that he be found trustworthy or faithful. I said, the problem is this man has bought into the lie that trustworthiness, faithfulness is vanilla. You need to do something radical. You need to do something courageous and explosive. And blah, 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 blah. I said, the Bible says we are to be faithful. Not to be creative or innovative, but to be faithful. And I ended up giving them a little couple minute encouragement about that because they were already under the pile that they weren't like Martin Luther. But as I said, there's only been one Martin Luther in history. And that leads into my next point. Faithfulness, trustworthiness is not easy. It's not vanilla. It's not milk toast. It's not for old fogies. I can remember when I was a young man and I heard another pastor say, when he was 25, I was a world beater. I was going to do all these great things for Jesus. And when he said this, he said he was 56 years old. And he saw how hard it was to get to 56, the battles he had to fight, the pitfalls he had to avoid, the wounds he had received. He goes... I just want to make it. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to fall into a ditch. I don't want to lose the torch of truth. I don't want to fall into some life-affecting sin. I want to make it. And he said, when I was 25, that would have sounded so vanilla, so old fogey-ish. He said, but it's not. It's biblical. It's realistic. Guys who are 25, they don't know the things they're going to face. They don't know the temptations. They don't know the pitfalls that are out there. It's like, Doing a, going out on a squad in Vietnam. You're walking in a jungle. You can't see anything. Is there some snare for you to break through and, be, and set off a booby trap? Is there a pit there full of stakes that you're going to fall into? Can you be bitten by a venomous snake or a spider? There's all kinds of things con- are going to come at you. And you go, oh, I want to be great and mighty. Oh, beat, your, beat your chest. It's harder than you think to be faithful. The goal is not to go out with an explosion. The goal is to go on faithfully year after year. In the first year of your marriage, the fifth year of your marriage, the tenth year of your marriage, the fortieth year of your marriage, of your job, whatever it is. You don't want to fall into disqualifying sin. You don't want to lose the gospel. You want to finish well. In 2007, at the Evangelical Theological Society, An older theologian named Royce Greenler, who was a professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, spoke on a spiritual pilgrimage and how he had graduated from college and grad school and got his PhD, was teaching at a college in Ohio, and went off the beaten path into a heresy. But for several years he didn't know it was a heresy. Open theism, it was called. 
And he said, I had a best friend and we were both in it together. God brought me to my senses and I realized how bad this theology was and where it would lead. And I repented and I quit. My friend didn't. He lost his marriage. He lost his faith. He lost everything. By the grace of God, I'm not there anymore. I've dedicated the rest of my teaching career to teaching not only against that heresy, but to teach the truth. He said, I'm 73 years old. I'm not thinking about my next book. I'm not thinking about my next conference. Pretty soon, probably, I'm going to have to stand before God and give account of my life. And then the question will be, Royce, were you faithful? Did you do what I entrusted you to do? Being faithful or trustworthy means running in the race, fulfilling your stewardship right up to the end of your life. By the grace of God, my wife and I have been married 46 years. It's amazing that she would love me for 46 years, but God's given her great grace. We want to make it as long as the Lord has it. We don't want to say, well, I was faithful for 46 and I can punt now. Or, you know, how long were you at your job? Well, I've been pretty faithful at my job, but I decided that I wanted to coast for a while. Well, no. Whatever God's given you to do, be faithful to it. I can tell you too many horror stories of gifted men who began and who seemed to flash across the sky like rockets, only to fall to the ground like a rock. I know a man who had a a PhD. He graduated from an Ivy League school. He was an All-American football player in an Ivy League school. He was very good-looking, a dynamic speaker. He had the Christian world at his fingertips, and he crashed and burned. And the last I heard, he was speaking at a Marriott north of Atlanta as a motivational speaker. That's a far cry from preaching the gospel, which he used to. There's a man who I know who, he's my age, he's 70. I was been friends for him for 25 years or more. And he's under church discipline, about to be excommunicated, because after leading his church through Reformation and being a pastor for many years, he's fallen into sin twice and is unrepentant and living in Florida with his paramour. And his church is about to excommunicate him for unrepentant sin at age 70, taking medicine that keeps him alive only by the grace of God. He's this close to eternity, and he's still now in the thraldom of sin. Sin has him. There is nothing that says you, based upon yourself, will make it. It's casting yourself on the grace of God daily and saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not, well, you know, God, I'm not only a member of this church, this is a Reformed Baptist church. The angels are going, whoa. Um, That doesn't cut ice with God. The question is, do I cast myself upon him every day, knowing that there are enemies that I have to face, but praying that God would be merciful to me and that he would keep me because I'm not praying to be great, I'm praying to be faithful. As, as I've told you before, I'm 70 years old. We used, to, we used to flee dinosaurs on the way to school. That's how bad it was. I have not finished my course yet. I want to finish well. I don't want to drop the truth, drop the torch of the gospel. I don't want to fall into some life-affecting sin. I want to finish well, but I can't coast. 
what I want for myself and what I want for you. And I really do want this for you because I changed the message I was going to give to give this one. Christ has assigned you and me to do different things. But I want him to say to you and to me at the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you by my Father from before the foundation of the world. You don't have control over things outside of your control, but you have responsibility for yourself. My prayer for you is that God would help each of us to be faithful to what he's called us to do. And even though we may not be great or famous, if we're faithful, we'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So you're not in the cover of a magazine, so people don't invite you to do things, so your name isn't in lights. That's nothing compared to hearing the Savior saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you take my stammering words today and would you bless them to the hearts of these saints? I pray for the kids yet who haven't come to Christ that you'd have mercy upon them, that you would show them that they're sinners too and they need a Savior and they're desperately in a bad way without him. For those of us who have been given grace to come to a saving relationship with Christ, would you help us to think about what you have entrusted to us? What are our stewardships? And may we be faithful with them. To the honor and glory of your name we pray. And then the glory that would redound to you that this church would be known as a place full of faithful Christians. Not great and glorious Christians, faithful Christians, regular Joes who are just being faithful. In, this, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.